Good evening, everyone. As we continue the reviews of the chapters that Venerable Chujan taught over the last, you know, seven, eight, well, last year, really. Um, we'll do this for a couple of more weeks. And uh, tonight, we will look at chapter 10, Karma and Results. So let's start, um, just stay in meditation here. We'll take your attention to your breath for a moment. And we'll start with the motivation. When Venerable taught this chapter, she gave a very beautiful um, instruction for practice as a motivation. And I thought it would be timely to simply repeat my teacher's words. Given that um, in this week in the United States, we've experienced a big change actually in energy. And the um, inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris, in the words of um, the president, he spoke a lot about harmony and bringing people together and listening. And he used the word love. I don't know how much love has ever been used in inaugural speech before. And that speech um, has been met with um, relief and love from a lot of people and also a lot of skepticism from um, people on both sides of whatever the divide might be. So this practice will be very helpful for all of us as we go forward in the next while. As Venerable suggested that to help us generate bodhicitta and familiarize ourselves with it, practice think about thinking about love and compassion and bodhicitta anytime we see a sentient being. Anytime our eyes fall on a living being. So here right now, um, today I saw three deer in the garden. Beautiful little deer hanging around, quite, quite friendly here in the wintertime and they're being fed, so why wouldn't they want to be friendly? But to see them and think how each one of these deer is trapped in samsara by afflictions and karma, and take a moment to generate compassion and make a karmic connection to lead them to full awakening. We can do the same thing with the birds that we encounter, the turkeys that we encounter, the human beings that we encounter. We can also do it in our minds thinking about the president and his family. Think about how he's trapped in samsara by afflictions and karma. Generate compassion and make a commitment to lead him, them to full awakening. And we can think about the recent past president and his family. The new vice president and her family. 
the recent past vice president and his family. The neighbors that we know think very differently from us. And the friends, people we call friends, why? Because they think similarly to us. And just one by one, as we bring people to mind or as we greet them, see how each one is trapped in samsara by afflictions and karma. Generate compassion and make a commitment to lead them to full awakening. So training our minds to practice like this really changes our attitude, especially with sentient beings, the human beings, sorry. Because it's harder to, well, it's easier to uh, have tender thoughts about the deer, I think. But doing this reminds us of the purpose of our life and how we want to be when we're with others. So we'll make that our motivation for sharing the teachings tonight. and dedicate our lives to leading all those sentient beings to awakening, not leaving out a single one. So a couple of weeks ago, Venerable Tarpa led us through the key points of realizing that we have a precious human life. We're um, developing self-confidence and appreciation for our potential are the chief purposes of contemplating our precious human life. That's what His Holiness said. So we looked at the eight freedoms and the 10 portions, fortunes, A precious human life is free from eight impediments and endowed with ten fortunes. And Venerable Tarpa reminded us of Geshe, Jampa Tekchak's teaching. He said, it's not who you are, it's what you can do with your precious human life. So then last week, Venerable Seppel led us through the nine points to remind us um, of the, the, the nine-point death meditation to remind us that this opportunity will not last. That our death is definite. The time of death is unknown completely. And nothing but the Dharma that we've taken into our hearts will help us at the end. So now the text goes on to karma and effects. And as His Holiness explains here, traditional Lamrim topics go from death and impermanence to refuge in the Three Jewels. But here's what he says. He said, however, many people nowadays find the qualities of the three jewels too subtle and difficult to understand. And the cause and effect approach of teachings on karma to be practical. 
Um, and I, and Ben Venerable Children at that time, Venerable Sagi Kadri was here. That in, their, in teaching Western students, they they agreed that that was so. Um, and karma has made its way into popular culture. I, this was just a whim, and I, I was so amazed. I went online to get a, just a view of like what's happening with popular culture and karma. Oh my gosh, karma, Oxford Dictionary. In Hinduism and Buddhism, it's a noun. The sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. Is that the karma we're talking about here? No. The Huffington Post has several articles on karma. When one deliberately disobeys the will of God, karma is accrued. <laughs> It is the intent of one's actions that generates karma, la, 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 la. The causal relationship between our current actions and future occurrences is referenced in Galatians 6, 7, chapter 6, verse 7, King James Version. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Will karma get my ex for hurting me? When your ex dumped you and hurt you, he or she created a lot of karma and they will have to pay for it. <laughs> their karma and their action will come back around and hurt them in the exact same way they hurt you when they dumped you. So yes, karma will get your ex so hard that they won't know what hit them. <laughs> and there was another one I liked. It was way too long, but she talks about karma as, as following the law of attraction, that bad people get away with it you know, with having good things because their karma is to attract good, good, good things. They're in the vibe of attraction. Okay, so Alicia Keys has a song called Karma. Um, I, I tried to catch it. I mean, I couldn't stand for very long, but it had, seems to have something to do with some boyfriend. Um, <laughs> karma is an app. Karma is a social network designed for those who create the value to actually earn it. That's their copy. Karma is a luxury travel agency. There's a karma for investors. There's a karma personal productivity tool. There are karma nuts, which somebody's been sending to us. They're, they have nice bags. Karma is a gallery in New York. There's Miss Vicky's Good Karma Aromatherapy in Spokane. And Madam Karma Karaoke in Post Falls, Idaho. <laughs> karma is a drink. This is my favorite. This is, this is their... Karma water is a truly enlightened product born out of the idea that what goes around comes around. A product based on the simple belief that if you do something positive for others or yourself, you'll get something positive back in return. Wow. <laughs> so that's not what we're talking about here. But we laugh because we think we know about karma. And we have to ask ourselves, when we complain about things that happen, misfortune that falls to us, and, you know, that shows, that shows like we have no idea why things happen. So the same if good things happen, right? If we deserve it, and we don't even think about the causes. We don't, it's just like, oh, of course, this is supposed to happen, it's good. But she said there's a gap between the Dharma we study and reflect on and how we respond to life situations. So when we go off the deep end and we have to bring ourselves back 
we have to remind ourselves how life works. So on the one hand, we may technically have a lot more information about, um, about karma, but you know, in the end, Yes, karma will get your ex so hard they don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably been in your mind. I'm sure it's been in mine. Um, so let's look at what His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Venerable Children have to say about it. So on page 232, I think, 231. Having found a precious human life, we now have a choice. First paragraph. Will we create the causes for suffering or will we create the causes for happiness? That's what it boils down to. If we decide to do the latter, the most urgent thing to do is abandon the 10 non-virtues and engage in the 10 virtues to observe karma and its effects. Doing so will bring happiness in this life and fortunate rebirths in future lives and will establish the foundation of liberation and full awakening. That's a pretty big promise. And Lamrim Chinmo, Lama Tsongkhapa says, generating faith in the law of karma is the mind that is the roots of all excellence. The root of all excellence. That's also a very big statement. So in paragraph two, His Holiness says there are many types of causality. No, sorry, paragraph three. Um, Biological, chemical, psychological, and so forth, of which the law of karma and effects is one. So I think whatever our training or our background, we can see how human beings rely on this basic understanding of cause and effect. I mean, it's, it happens everywhere. You don't plant the garden, you don't get beans. Or if the sun never comes out all summer, you don't get beans either. So the conditions have to be there. And of course we think of science as relying on cause and result. But you know, how many people in your work life have developed something like a flow chart or something to get something done, a work chart? I mean, Venerable Dantra is very good at these, setting up uh, workflows for, <laughs> for our, our tech. It helps a lot. Um, Venerable Lamsel is very good at these too. So, for example, here at the Abbey, if, if we're thinking about, um, you know, how our year will, will unfold, for example, Venerable Seppel will write the teachers we want to invite to teach. Venerable Damcho will assess all the groups and places that have invited Venerable children to teach. Then we sit down, we lay out a schedule, we write up the descriptions of what we're going to do. Venerable Nima makes a nice email. We send it out to all the people on our email list, which also arises due to causes and conditions, but that's another story. And then the people come, or they used to, and they will again. Um, that's like one cause needs the next thing, and the result, you could say, people come. So we have to have programs to make an email. We have to send the email, or nobody will know about it. And then unplanned completely comes a pandemic, and that stops all of that, or it changes it to something different than we expected. And those causes are a whole other series that interloop, interlace. So there are you know, cycles of chains of cause and effect that happen in life all the time, and we know that. Um, and I think maybe we have a harder time with it 
in really connecting with it when we're talking about cause and effect of karma, because it's more about our personal experiences in our own mind. Those are my thoughts anyway. And, and this is also just my thought. But these things that happen, um, like, so all the things I just outlined were things we planned, except for the pandemic. And so we feel like we have some control, but then things happen that aren't in our plan. <laughs> in other words, we're no longer in charge of the cause and effect chain that we're trying to, to, to um, control. When things get outside of us, then it seems ra random and just impossible to explain. Like, why did this happen to me? I had this great plan. And then something came out of nowhere, and we don't see that that also is part of cause and effect. And the other thing I was thinking is that we're more familiar with cause and effect in the material world, just in general. We're more, we're more aware of the material world in general. That's our whole education trains us to be externally involved. So we're not trained to look at our inner world, our inner causes and effects, period. And even in psychology, which does do that, it's looking through a different lens than Buddhism does. So um, we have to, we have to um, really take our mind to think about karma and result and what it is and how it works again and again and again, I think, to take it really deeply so that we don't go, ah, why did this happen to me? You know, every time something, our plans go awry or the things we think we could control, we cannot. So here in the text, His Holiness tells us what karma is. Karma literally means action and refers to sentient beings' intentional, physical, verbal, and mental actions. Our actions matter. They not only influence others in this life, but also result in our own experiences in this and future lives. The results of our actions depend on our intentions. In that, actions done with virtuous intentions bring happy, happy results, and those motivated by non-virtuous intentions bring unpleasant results. So from this, we get a clearer picture of why Lama Tsongkhapa, J. Rinpoche, would say, generating faith in the law of karma is the mind that is the root of all excellence. All excellence meaning fortunate rebirths and ultimately realizations of the path, developing renunciation, bodhicitta, and the wisdom realizing the ultimate nature all the way to an awakening. Virtuous intention brings happy results. Those motivated by non-virtuous intentions bring unpleasant results. Generating in the faith in the law of karma means that we would want to follow that law to create the happy results and to avoid the unhappy results. So um, the text here asked us on the next page, law of karma and effects. Um, it's helpful to review the three characteristics of all systems of causality mentioned in Chapter 7. So I went back and pulled out the section from Chapter 7. Um, but you remember them? These can be understood by three principles of causality from Asanga's um, Compendium of Knowledge. The first one, an effect cannot arise without a cause. 
and every effect is preceded by its own cause. You'd think that would be self-evident, but that's not how we live. A lot. We think things happen randomly. Um, We think that... Or, you know, sometimes there's going to be some magical savior falling out of the sky. Deus ex machina. Something's going to come in and fix it just because it's time. An effect cannot arise without a cause, and every effect is preceded by its own cause. So for something to arise, something else has to cease. And there's no way, she said, Venerable said, to have your cake and eat it too. Try as we might. But we do. I mean, we, we, we may overtly pray to have things magically appear. Or we may just kind of wish that things will magically appear. Or may this pain go away. Or, you know, I've seen a lot of this thinking in my, especially in my early life, and especially in the New Age movement, doing affirmations or you know, making prayers for the law of attraction. It's like, did you make create the cause or not? That's the issue. The text goes on and says, there's no absolute creator that is the original source of all existence because such a creator would not have a cause and would have arisen causelessly, which is impossible. This refutes, refutes causeless production. So everything arises from a cause. We agree on that? I can't imagine an alternative, but if you think about it. Number two, an effect cannot arise from a permanent cause. So a permanent phenomena doesn't change, cannot change. And to produce an effect, change is necessary. Right? And again, the cause must cease for the effect to arise. This point, what does she say here? Right. Causes are impermanent. So it's flipped a little bit here. Causes are impermanent. That's the way it's said in this chapter. Because the arising of an effect necessitates the cessation of the cause. That's different from the way it's stated in the chapter 7. But it's important distinction. Causes are impermanent. Changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And that's where the seed ceases and changes into a sprout. Cause has to cease before the effect can arise. And then the third point from chapter 7, a cause must have the potential to produce a particular effect. And here it says, effects must be concordant with their causes. Same meaning. Um, Daisies cannot grow from tomato seeds. The substantial cause of form is previous moments of matter or energy, and the substantial cause of mind is previous moments of mind. Then the text goes on, it says, furthermore, one cause alone cannot produce an effect. Cooperative conditions are needed. The seed grows into a tree only when there is sufficient water, fertilizer, and heat. So our experiences don't just arise from a single cause, but from a whole variety of causes and conditions. And conditions are also causes. 
And the Dignaga Dharmakirti literature defines many different types of causes, and it's quite technical. Um, but there are three important ones for us to know. Yangtze Rinpoche really brings these out in his commentary on the same section, Alamrim Chimmo. They're useful here. The first one to know about is the substantial cause, well, three, substantial cause, the cooperative cause, and the ripening cause. The substantial cause is a technical term. It's a word we, term we use kind of loosely here sometimes, I hear us, myself included. But it means the cause that transforms into the nature of the result. Or you could say the material that gets transformed into the thing that's going to be the outcome of it. Like the example that Yangtze Rinpoche uses, I think it's pretty common, is the clay pot. The substantial cause of that clay pot is the clay. That's the very substance that's transformed into the pot. Whereas the cooperative cause, which is the second type, could be the potter, could be the water, could be the wheel. I mean, all these other cooperative causes, cooperative conditions, have to come together to make that clay turn into a pot. But the substantial cause is the clay. With a corn, you know, for, with a tortilla. I think the cornmeal is the substantial cause of the tortilla. The water, the griddle, the hands that know what to do with that to make it, those are all cooperative conditions. And a moment of mind. The substantial cause of the moment of mind is the previous moment of mind. So we can talk about the, a significant cause or an important factor, but when we talk about substantial cause, um, that's the technical term that is useful to keep. Um, the cooperative cause, according to Leung Zirimashe, does not is not transformed into the nature of the result, but helps it to affect the result. As Venerable Children said, where we live, who we hang out with, is a huge influence on what karma ripens, because all of those are creating the conditions. They're bringing about some cooperative causes. And then the third cause to be aware of that, that Yangtze Rinpoche talks about is the ripening cause. The cause that most directly affects the final result. And it's most often applied to cause and effect in terms of rebirth. Um, for example, the ripening cause or the throwing karma that ripens at the moment of death and determines a sentient being's next rebirth. That's a ripening cause. Then you remember, remember, may remember from Pramodavartika that we were studying direct and indirect cause. We were looking at special indispensable cause and all those things. Um, these refine this more directly, but we're not going to go there tonight. Um, page 292. So similarly, so just like all of these definitions of what these causes are, on the internal level, sentient beings' experiences of happiness and suffering arise from preceding causes and conditions. I mean, put in those terms, it's so logical. Of course. Everything else rises from a cause. Why would that not rise from a cause? Why wouldn't it rise from an impermanent cause? Why wouldn't it cause from a, a concordant cause? 
Secular society usually traces these to genetic or environmental factors and does not consider the law of karma and effects. But then he goes on, um, boy, this is just packed, sentence by sentence. A natural process that functions whether or not a person believes in it, the law of karma and its effects was not created by the Buddha. So this, this whole paragraph is packed into a whole bunch of misconceptions about karma that we hold. So I just broke them out and numbered them out. And that's the first one. A natural process that func- karma is a natural process that functions whether or not a person believes in it. You don't have to be a Buddhist for karma to work in your life. Or Hindu. Everybody. Everybody experiences karma, cause and result in their life. Number two in this paragraph. The law of karma and its effects was not created by the Buddha. There is no parallel in Buddhism to Moses going out into the wilderness and coming down from the mountain with a tablet. The Buddha simply saw with his um, powers, a bit omniscient mind after his awakening, what was the cause of people's suffering and what was the cause of their happiness. Number three, nor does the Buddha judge people according to their actions and punish or reward them. So the Buddha is not meeting out karma and the Buddha is not judging people's actions. So this is so important that we really think about this. Karma is not a reward and punishment system. And I see this in myself, how much we've carried over from our whole society. Um, and we really have seen this, all of us who, um, who share the Dharma at the um, UU church classes over the years, people who um, are very, very good students, good practitioners, and how, um, how much this holdover from our society in general, I mean, how hard it is for this holdover from our society in general to come, kind of be washed out of the mind because karma interpreted through um, punishment and reward just becomes cruel. I mean, it's just one more measure of our poor quality self, one more reason to hate ourselves for our, for our mistakes and so forth, right? And that is totally not what karma is about. And we are so steeped in being good and being punished for being bad um, that when we think about karma, this is a really important thing to, to, to process. Um, and when we're doing purification practice, it's really important to um, look and see how much this cause and uh, punishment and reward system comes in there. When someone suffers from illness in which their unwholesome karma plays a causal role along with other factors, it does not mean that he deserves to suffer or that he made himself sick. That's where this misunderstanding can be quite tricky for people. Nor, on the other hand, should we ignore those who are injured or oppressed by unjust, by anything. This is a pure, poor excuse for our lack of compassion. 
Needless to say, those holding such attitudes create destructive karma themselves. Now, in her commentary, Venerable Children noted that in Buddhism, as part of our practice, when we understand this, then we relate our happiness and suffering to our actions. But we do it in a way that's beneficial. So, like, if I have sickness, then I think, oh, this is good for my Dharma practice. This is karma ripening. Um, it gives me a chance to practice. It makes me humble. It helps me develop compassion for others. It helps me purify my negativities. You know, there's a whole way of thinking about it where we own and accept that this illness is a result of my actions. But it's in no way taken as this is a punishment. No way. Years ago, I don't know if you guys have read Lama Zopa Rinpoche's book um, on the Medicine Buddha, Healing Buddha, A Practice for the Prevention and Healing of Disease. I loved it. I just thought it was brilliant. And I had two friends at that time who had cancer. And I thought, oh, I'm going to send this to them. I mean, they're both, you know, quite open people. They were Reiki people. <laughs> they were so angry. Oh, they were so angry at the book and the suggestion about um, why? Because, duh, they didn't know from karma. They, you know, they didn't have, they weren't steeped in that idea that they could purify or why would they purify or, you know, that the suggestion that their cancers came about because of their past actions was quite personal and affrontive, confrontive. So, um, yeah. So that's my story about a mistake. So Venerable Children say, we all have created negative karma. All of us. Everybody. Doesn't mean we're horrible people or that we're getting punished for anything. And in fact, we can get really into this, you know, I'm being punished for my bad actions. Really, this really becomes part of our self-centered trip, <laughs> our self-centered story. She said, we have to make sure our mind comes back to chilies grow from chili seeds and daisies grow from daisy seeds. Over and over and over, effects arise from causes. And we don't add any more self-blame because it's just not there. So that's important. And you may remember she told the stories about having told... Um, having talked about karma in a couple of situations where people were really grief-stricken and it was a bad idea. Um, so when we're counseling people, we have to be very aware of their state of mind and what their understanding of karma is. Whether they're Buddhist or non-Buddhist, if they don't understand karma very well, we just have to be mindful and aware. As the text says, karma is simply a natural law. Happiness is a result of virtue. They say again, suffering is the result of non-virtue. It's like gravity. It's just a law. Then the text says, the principal meaning of karma is volitional action. A physical or verbal or mental action done with intention. This does not mean doesn't necessarily mean that we're aware of our intentions. I mean, intention is present, but it doesn't mean that we have to be conscious and deliberate in order to create karma. 
You get what I mean? The the bugging of the mosquito is a really is a nice analogy or or example for me. In the old days, before I knew better, you know, I would just I didn't even think about it. And then you do this enough and you go inside, but you don't think about it. So on the one hand, you could say, well, I didn't mean to kill them. But in that little teeny tiny moment, irritation, destroy. Irritation, animosity. Right? That's karma. <laughs> that was an intention there to get rid of that, whatever that harming phenomenon was. It's a tiny little prick, actually. It's not much, but kills a lot of them. So uh, that's still karma. And then this text takes us to the very first verse in the Dhammapada. Intention is in the mind. Okay, so mind is the forerunner of all miserable states. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof of the ox, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. Mind is the forerunner of all happy states. It is the mind that leads the way. Just as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will surely follow when we speak or act from a pure state of mind. So as Venerable Children said, or it's here in the book, our mind and mouth do not move on their own. They act spurred by an intention in our mind. Thus, the mind is the root of all our actions and the source of the happiness and suffering that result from them. So there's some examples here. When we carefully observe the Sutta, with a particular intention, we adopt a certain behavior in the early part of our life. While some of its effects may manifest immediately, some may ripen only decades in the future. Likewise, our motivation in the morning sets the stage for what we experience and how we act later on. These examples illustrate causality within this life. So I want to stop here a minute, because when Venerable taught this, she shared about a turning point, an unplanned event that had an effect in the future. You remember her story? She talked about being at the um, triple, platform, triple platform ordination ceremony as a bhikshuni witness participating there. And while she was there, she was wondering, now, how did I get here? And she traced it back to uh, having met in 1989. She was with somebody in Seattle, and this person said, oh, I want you to meet these Chinese nuns over in Kirkland and that. So um, I, I was trying to think about what some experiences like that in my own life, and maybe you guys have some stories too. Think about it for a minute. But one thing that I think about kind of often, hmm, When I was in high school, um, 
there's a Jimmy Carter started the governor's gov, Georgia Governor's Honors Program, which is still going. I looked it up today for rising seniors in a special area of something, something. You could go spend the summer and study that special thing. And you have to be nominated and you can only apply in one category. And so my, and your teacher's not supposed to tell you, but my drama teacher told me I'm going to nominate you. So great. But I also expected to get nominated in music, right? So I'm waiting, waiting for the letter. I got the drama letter, I got the drama letter, but I'm not gonna apply until I get the music letter because then I have to decide whether I'm gonna apply and da 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 and then the application date's getting closer and closer and there's no letter. So, okay, never mind, choice made. And I applied in the drama program and I auditioned and I got there and da da da. And that's then when I st went to college, studied in, in school, studied theater, that became my career. In that career, I was happened to be in theater at a time when there was a lot of money for regional nonprofit professional regional theater. And so I got this and I got tired of doing really bad plays. I was doing a really bad play in North Carolina and uh, there were not very many people in the audience often. So when they got a grant <laughs> to train someone to learn to do publicity and marketing and um, development for theater, I applied and got the job. So I got trained by some of the best like PR people in the country during that period of time, right? So I left the theater for many times actually, but I left the theater for good in 1992. That was almost 30 years ago. But I used those skills at Shravasti Abbey every single day to share the Dharma. And if I hadn't been in the, if I hadn't not taken that theater route, I would never have gone to Seattle. That's why I moved to Seattle because there were so many theaters there. I could change jobs and not have to change cities. And uh, I would never, therefore, I would never have met venerable children. Therefore, I would never have been here. So it's like, and then funny thing is that you know, some years after high school, I went back. You know, you do that for a while. Some people do. And I was visiting my choral teacher, and she she said, you know. The only, she said, one sad thing for me is that you chose to audition in theater and not music. And I said, Miss Harrison, I never got nominated. She said, I nominated you. Letter never came. Letter never came. So that whole trajectory, trajectory of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but again... I don't know. I mean, certainly there was karma in there. Karma was a part of this. And uh, I certainly created a lot of karma along the way as well. Um, but this is still cause and effect of this life. Right? That's cause and effect of this life. Anybody else have a story, like a short story that comes to mind immediately? Yeah. I was at the uh, new physics faculty workshop and was chatting with a few people, but I'm not the most social person. But one person I talked to happens to be from Emory University down the road. We end up sharing a cab to the airport. We maybe chatted for 30 minutes total. He was the one who put in my name when someone was looking for some physics faculty to go to <coughs> India to teach monks and nuns. And so that conversation, 
a year later, I get a phone call out of nowhere to go, which was my introduction to the Dharma, and then later my introduction <laughs> to the Venerable Children. <laughs> That's a good story. Karma ripening. Anybody else got one? Yeah, Venerable Children. When I was in Seattle, um, I had a private practice, and one of my clients came in one week and um, had just gone to a retreat center and said uh, she really loved it, and and I showed a little interest, but, you know, yeah. Next week she came in and she uh, gave me the pamphlet or the flyer about uh, this center, and it was Cloud Mountain, and I flipped through it. I had no interest in any of this stuff, and I flipped through it, and I saw Venable Children's picture, and I thought, I go to that one. <laughs> Out of the blue, and I went to that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's karma there, too. It's all intertwined, right? Gishi Chilton Pelsam when I, when I was um, taking these classes from him in India, he used this, this um, analogy many times. So he, this is an important point, at least from his point of view, to distinguish between the um, causality of this life and what is karma. He says, if you rob a bank, you get convicted, you go to prison, that is not karma. That's a result of your negative action in this life. Now, you will reap the karmic result of robbing the bank, no question. And it is, you know, it's very likely the karma created in previous lives that gave you the habit to be a bank robber. But the, but the trajectory from robbing the bank, getting arrested, and going into prison is this life's causality. So this is, um, I don't know, I think it's important to kind of make the distinction. They say, they say, some teachings say, I mean, different people say different things. I've heard teachers say that like 98% of what we're experiencing, 98% is my word, almost everything that we experience is from previous lives. The karma from this life has to be really strong to actually ripen in this life. But that what we are experiencing from the karmic point of view is what we did in the past. And I don't think there's anybody here who believes that they created the causes to be a monastic at Travasti Abbey or even to study and train at Travasti in this life. Conditions, maybe, but yeah. So... So we can just use examples of things like Venerable Jigme's story. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll go. I'll follow that teacher um, to see that karma does ripen, and and so um, it helps us develop compassion for the people around us, right? The experiences of people around us, the. Um, the niece I have, for example, whose life has just been so difficult from the time of her adolescence um, and the tendency to get in trouble and get involved or involved with things that cause problems and 
you know, drugs and blah, 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 blah. We all have relatives like that. And um, which often don't get a lot of compassion for their behaviors. And yet, if we can step back and I'm not saying be indulgent about it, but also recognize that all of us are experiencing the result of our own past actions. And then we can take responsibility for it, which is what this is about. So back to the text. So again, His Holiness says, the same where I left off. When we talk about karma and its effects, it primarily concerns causes created in one life, bringing results in future lives. So then, he says, an understanding of karma and its effects will have a direct effect on our choices, decisions, and actions in daily life. So even though I just said that most of what we experience is coming from the past, we have tremendous choice about what we're going to do in the next moment. And the choices we make influence what karma will ripen. I think of that man that we um, got a call in the middle of a retreat, I don't know how many years ago now, three, maybe two years, three years ago, when um, a man in a nearby town was, uh, had been into drugs way a long time ago. And as far as we learned was really into helping people get off drugs, get off the street, did a lot of good. But he happened to be a bar in a bar in town one night and somebody else started a scuffle and he, as the story as I understood it, he went to try to help and try to calm this guy down. The guy took him outside in the parking lot, shot him, right? Like point blank, killed him. And um, we were called because a relative of his um, knew that his family was um, somehow connected or loved the Dalai Lama, or I don't even know what the connection was. They're not Buddhist, but um, that person was a, a sister-in-law or something that then called and had us come to be with the mother and with the with the young with the man. And I kept thinking about the stories we heard. And how, you know, how much people loved him, how much he was cared for, how much he had turned his life around. And yet, the condition of being in a bar on a Saturday night at 2 o'clock in the morning caused this huge karma to just ripen. It's like, yikes. Yikes. And we all know stories like that person, the wrong place, wrong time. And even though we're all still sitting here, we probably have also experienced being in the wrong place at the wrong time at some point or another with less devastating effects. But where we go, what we do, who we hang out with, and how we think also influences as part of the um, conditions that affect how our karma past actions ripen. So that takes us to the uh, sutra topic that's here on page 235. 
where the Buddha emphasized this, and he, he, this phrase appears throughout the um, sutras in many places. He says, beings are the owners of our karma, heirs of their karma. They originate from their karma, are bound to their karma, have their karma as their refuge. It is karma that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. So we're the owners of our karma. That means it's due to our own actions, right? We can blame all the other people all we want, but it doesn't mean that karma is their responsibility. And the more blaming we do, of course, the more negative karma we create. So it's an ever-ending cycle there. Well, it's possible to end it, but (laughs) we have to do that deliberately. We are heirs to our karma. So it's passed down. We inherit the previous actions of our past lives. And this this is something we're thinking about. Every future person connected with the continuity of this consciousness will inherit the potentials we put in our mind streams in the future. So, you know, people generally, I mean, nobody, people in this room, not necessarily, but in general, people talk about their legacy and what they're going to leave their children. And that's important. But it's really important to think about what you're going to leave your future life. I have a friend who talks about um, giving. He's a Dharma teacher, and he talks about giving Um, as giving a present to yourself in the future. Intentionally creating virtue as giving a present to yourself as a future. And it's a nice way of thinking about it. So we're heirs to our karma. Beings originate from their karma. Each life that we take originates from whatever karma ripens at the time of death. So life after life, we are re-originated from our karma. Beings are bound to their karma. So yeah, we're thrown into a life situation and that's just how it is. We can work within that life, but let's say you're an Abbey cat and you want to be a nun. You can't wish away your catness. You just have to wait. Beings have karma as their refuge. So the Venerable's take on this was this. She says, usually we look for all other kinds of things as our refuge. But if we take responsibility for our actions, then karma does become our refuge. Right? So if you spend your life conscientiously creating virtue, then the virtue you've been stockpiling in your mind becomes your refuge at death. And that's big. That's huge. And then it's karma that distinguishes a being as inferior or superior. So it's not our money. It's not our good looks. 
It's not our power. It's not our fame. It's not any worldly thing. It's our conduct and how we are as a human being that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. So the conclusion we can draw from this is the Buddha compassionately shared his understanding of karma with us so we can take charge in a way of our life and our future lives. We really can. And then Yangtze Rinpoche says perseverance in the practice of purely observing karma is essential. No one is above the workings of cause and effect. Karma is applicable to us all, no matter how high you are in the realization field. <laughs> he says right up, right up until the moment of Buddhahood, there's still karma at work. I mean, that's true. Right? It's not completely eliminated until that moment. And so we're all subject to that law. And then in general, awareness of karma means knowing which thoughts and actions we should abandon and which thoughts and actions we should cultivate. That's pretty straightforward. Can you imagine if we had learned this in kindergarten, how different your life might be? I mean, it's so basic. This is what you adopt. This is what you abandon. Why wouldn't you learn this in kindergarten? Because we're in a different system. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so then we go to the general characteristics of karma. Karma has these four general characteristics. Understanding these provides us the basic framework to understand karma and its effects. First one, karma is definite. In that, happiness comes from previously created constructive actions and suffering comes from previously created destructive actions. It never occurs the other way around. An action is not inherently good or bad, but is designated as virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral in relation to the result that it brings. So when we're unhappy, it's either non-virtue ripening or are we creating it in the moment? When we fall into despair, when we're psychologically unhealthy, somehow it's related to non-virtue. And one of the, I mean, one of the main ways karma ripens is in that feeling aggregate, right? So if we're upset or unhappy or angry, something in turn or our attitude and motivation is out of whack. When I was doing some of this research um, preparing this week, I saw an article where someone was writing about how he's suffering so much from the ongoing pandemic. And he acknowledged in the article that he, he, he wasn't ill, he hadn't been ill, he hadn't lost anybody that he knew of to the illness, he hadn't lost his job, but just the separation and the isolation and not being able to do the things he enjoyed, enjoyed and all the things that you know, were just making him sick. And it was so sad to read. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he was just a journalist in general, just giving an opinion or what, but, but I know that's a very common experience now. But because I was doing this work, it's like, I mean, this preparation is like, but that mental state is just a ripening of negative karma. 
Yeah, I mean, I say that without any judgment, but there, I mean, there are huge conditions in the world right now that are contributing conditions to someone having um, suffering, but the main cause is ripening negative karma. Therefore, it can be changed, right? Because if he were able to put himself in different conditions, you know, practice meditation, for example, or, or find a situation to help others, you know, do something where he's benefiting other people or do something that uplifts his mind, it could very well bring about a ripening of virtuous karma and more peace to his mind, right? So so it was interesting to think about it in terms of karma. It's like there's ways you could psychologically, um, you could give psychological antidotes to... Um, someone's discouragement and there's there's lots and lots and lots of articles these days about ways for people to keep a happy mind but to think about it in terms of change your conditions a little bit to so that the possibility for your own virtuous karma to ripen it can't ripen if your mind is in in the pit right so anyway it was interesting to look at it in that way So the Buddha teaches us to abandon non-virtuous actions and cultivate virtuous actions on the basis of this, that karma is definite. If, friends, this is the Buddha, if, friends, one who enters and dwells amid unwholesome states could dwell happily in this very life without vexation, despair, and fever, and if, with the breakup of the body after death, he could expect a good destination, then the Blessed One would not praise the abandoning of unwholesome states. But because one who enters and dwells amid unwholesome states dwells in suffering in this very life with vexation, despair, and fever, and because he can expect a bad destination with the breakup of the body after death, the Blessed One praises the abandoning of unwholesome states. It's so clear. It's so logical. If, friends, one who enters and dwells amid wholesome states would dwell in suffering in this very life with vexation, despair, and fever, and if, with the breakup of the body after death, he could expect a bad destination, then the Blessed One would not praise the acquisition of wholesome states. Duh. But because one who enters and dwells amid wholesome states dwells happily in this very life without vexation, despair, and fever, and because he can expect a good destination with the breakup of the body after death, the Blessed One praises the acquisition of wholesome states. Totally clear. So it would be really cool, I would think, to be able to train ourselves to think, I'm happy. Oh, virtuous karma is ripening. Actually, I had one of those thoughts this week, but it was from studying this. (laughs) I'm unhappy. Oh, negative karma is ripening. And we use that as an antidote. It's a fantastic antidote. Venerable's whole book on good karma talks about how to use this understanding as an antidote to our negativities and to help us change our mind. So understanding karma also then becomes a tool in um, transforming our minds from bad states to positive ones. And also to use everything that happens to us on the path to uh, bring about uh, everything that happens to us in our life to be used on the path to bring about our awakening. 
Number two, karma is expandable and that a small action can bring a large effect in the same way that a small seed can produce a large tree. Did you ever do some small, tiny little thing that you thought nothing about and it became a very big deal? Just because you set the ball in motion? Yeah? Anybody got a story? A short story? Yes? When I worked as a nurse in the hospital, um, I... uh, uh, was admitting a new patient into the room, and the room wasn't clean. There was no TP in the bathroom. The towels weren't there. It was just a mess. And this person, I think, was uh, connected to the administrator of the hospital. And they asked me to go to the the you know the meeting with all the big doodahs in the hospital and tell my story. And I did, and the entire admission process and how they cleaned rooms and everything was changed because of that one little thing. (laughs) That's a great story. One small action becomes a big deal. I don't find the acorn becomes a tree analogy all that um, effective for my mind. But just the other day, and I'm going out on a limb because I'm not sure I understood this fully, but when when we were receiving teachings from Jeffrey Hopkins the other day, um, he was talking about, he said this, karma being what it is, good karma and the result, when it manifests, it draws with it many karmas of similar type so that when they ripen, it ripens with great magnitude. So it made me think about this. He says, it may be appearing to be the ripening of one action, but it draws with it the results of many other karmas. As Sutra says, a huge tree goes from a single acorn. How do you get a huge tree from a single seed? A lot of cooperative causes. That's what he said. And it gave me more understanding about how this particular law works. Oh, karma ripens, and a karmas of similar type come with it, ripens with great magnitude. I found it helpful. So one karmic imprint is the main cause, and then all these other imprints contribute as conditions to bring about a a result. Always. You know, it's not that linear. There's not just one cause that makes something happen. Everything is interrelated, as we know. Everything is interdependent, and all these other causes are at work. Number three, we will not experience the effect of an action we have not done. You would think that too would be self-evident, but how many times have you prayed for something to happen that you have not created the cause for? (laughs) I mean, even very worldly things. Please let me pass the test. Please let me get the job. Please who? I don't even know who you're praying to. Please help me find a parking place. (laughs) But we will not experience the effect of an action we, uh, no, we will not, um, yeah, we will not experience the effect of an action we have not created, we have not done. If we don't create the causes for awakening, we won't become Buddha. We can pray and pray and pray and pray, but we will not do it. We have to do the practices that lead to awakening. And as Venerable Children says over and over, be content to create the causes. And you know, I think when we really get this, 
we are content to create the causes. We get that all we're doing all the time is creating causes. We're creating causes, creating causes, creating causes. Likewise, she said, if we created the causes to get sick and we put ourselves in situations that contribute to the possibility of that ripening, then we will. If we don't, put on a mask, stay six feet away. These days, just stay home. You're not inviting that karma to ripen. So that's important. And then the fourth one. Karmic seeds do not get lost or magically vanish. So the karmic seeds remain on our mind stream until the conditions come together for it to ripen. The imprint, the residue of the actions remain. But the effect will definitely be experienced unless it is counteracted. How do we do that? So for negative um, actions, we can purify. And then if we've created virtue, we guard it from anger and wrong views. Then our text here says, the ripening of karma is interdependent, is an interdependent occurrence with many contributing factors and variables. So Venerable also kind of warned us at the end of this teaching. She said, don't concretize karma. You know, like, this thing is really going to get your boyfriend. (laughs) Whatever that one was. Um, The whole law of karma and studying it, thinking about it, does not mean that we're fated to experience something. There's a lot of flexibility in how karma ripens. It depends on the weight of the action. It depends on whether it's been purified or not. It depends on the cooperative conditions. It depends on all these things. Like, as I said now a couple of times, what Venerable said, where we go, what we do, who we hang out with, makes a difference. What doesn't flex of all this is that karma is definite in that Negative actions, destructive actions create um, suffering. That's not the word I want, but it'll do. And uh, virtuous actions create happy situations. That's definite. But this big picture is extremely uh, valuable to meditate on again and again and again and again. And to think about it from the perspective of what does this mean in my life? You know, as we're going through our day, especially now that we're in retreat, you know, it's so easy to see what's arising in our mind. One thing I've been looking at, and I thought I might share tonight, but there's just not time. But I've been listening to some of the talks with Geshe Kelsang Wangmo on um, the 12 links. And she talks a lot about the imprints in the mind and how every action and every mental event leaves that residue. And there's different weights of that, of course, but that um, the imprint is like, she uses the analogy of um, a boot mark in snow, right? That snow is the mind, the boot is the action, mental, physical, verbal, and the print, the footprint, is the residue that's left on the mind that has the potential 
to ripen. And she also talks about it from, from the situation, and this is the part that I wasn't clear about, about what when it becomes strong enough to be a, a karmic seed. And I asked Venerable, we'll get an answer, I'll get an answer sometime. But, but what she did say that I thought was very interesting is to look at mental habit. That it is based on the imprint, based on that residue, that mental habits are developed. For example, you say, this person doesn't like me, based on whatever. The next time you see that person, or the next time they kind of frown, you go, oh, this person doesn't like me. Mental habit. After a while, they hardly have to do anything. This person doesn't like me. You've never checked it out, right? <laughs> this person doesn't like me. Until you start behaving as though this person doesn't like me. I mean, it changes your whole relationship. But you've created a mental habit based on thoughts that is this one res residual thought that then you allow to happen again. And it gets easier to think that every single time you connect with that person. A mental habit is made, and of course it becomes concrete, it becomes true, and it affects so many things. So it's just interesting to think about what we're leaving on our mind. What imprints we're leaving on our mind at all times. So, as Yangtze Rinpoche said, again, we should persevere in uh, our practice of being aware and conscious of karma. Any thoughts or questions before we stop? I was thinking when you read the quote about those who um, engage in virtue won't be vexed in this life. Um, and yet there's many examples where people who dedicate their lives to doing well, that they have many problems ripening. So then how does that fit in? Well, it's a good question for the Buddha because I didn't write it. <laughs> But what's also true is if you are practicing this karma, you can have all kinds of vexing things happen in your life, and you have a mind that knows how to turn it. I think of Anthony Fauci right this minute. You know, and what we learn about Paul Farmer, and those kinds of people who, who have this optimism and a willingness to keep going without discouragement, you know, and if we apply the antidotes or, or actually bring this into our practice every day, then we never meet problems. As Oba Rinpoche says, they're like, you know, it's like having ice cream. There's not a problem. It's an opportunity to practice. So I believe probably his Buddha, the Buddha was speaking perhaps about things like that. Really a pure mind. Yeah, Venerable Tarpa? Way that was stated, I was thinking of it more like in the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for in sure. In the moment, if my mind is engaged in virtue, what comes at me is seen in a way that isn't vexing. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. And if my mind is not engaged in virtue, what comes at me, even if it's vexing or not, will seem vexing. <laughs> right. And that's why our teachers always say try to keep a happy mind. Keep a happy mind. It's and also it just uh, brings home so clearly that uh, the power of motivation. Yeah. It's so important. So important. Yeah, thank you. That's really true. Yeah, Matt. I'm glad Venerable Jigme brought up motivation. I've been thinking and digesting the book How Karma Works for a few weeks now. And 
as, as long as after or as, as we're experiencing karma, even if we recognize it and we say this is just karma, if we have one thought like, I want this to go away, I want it to be better, we're just creating more karma for samsara. Right. If we have a motivation, like I know Jigme is saying of, you know, renunciation or bodhicitta, then that karma we're creating is going to get us out and not dig us deeper. 